Hi, we are Inspired Churches and we are honored for you to tune in. We are a church that is being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and walking in rhythms of life for the good of the city and for the glory of God. As we walk into a new year, we invite you to be part of the ministry by donating a gift today. Go ahead and visit us at inspirechurches.com. And so today we are going to talk about marriage. Amen. How many singles? Any singles in the building? I mean, this isn't a wedding, so you don't have to be weird about it. Um, you know, not like, ah, you know. Um, any singles in the house? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Maybe not. There's, apparently everyone's married here. Married's where you at? Amen. Amen. While the married's are like, yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, and anytime I say, uh, the reason why I started off like that, anytime I talk about marriage, immediately everyone just starts thinking, I'll go, here we go, you know, another, another marriage seminar. But it's not about marriage. It's about the gospel. <laughs> Amen? And so God, God often uses the language of marriage. In fact, that might be one of his preferred languages throughout the entire scripture to describe his story. To describe his love for you and I, to describe his pursuit of his people. And I just, there's one picture that captured me this entire week that I just kept going back to. And I really wasn't going to put it in my message. But I was like, man, I'm just going to shove it there in the beginning. And just, I want you to see this picture. Like Jesus, or God, in the Old Testament, describing his love for Israel. Describing his history with Israel. He, he uses the language of marriage. And, and, and in, in particular, in this context, the prophet Ezekiel, uh, the Lord is speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. And the Lord is, is using the marital language to describe Israel being taken out of Egyptian bondage. And you remember they cross through the Red Sea. Y'all remember that? And they meet God at Mount Sinai where he gives them the law. And so look, look, at, look at how God, uh, and I'm going to read it actually. Uh, listen to how God kind of describes this in marriage terms. He says in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 16, 8, he says, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made a vow to you. And entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Like that's how God saw that moment at Mount Sinai with Israel. He rescued her, the bride, out of slavery. And though she was damaged, and though she was naked, he covered her with his garments. And then he made a covenant with her. He made a vow to her. And he told her that you're mine. Beautiful. And so uh, if you just take a step back and look at the Bible, according to the Bible, history begins with a marriage and history will culminate with a marriage. Do you know that? Like all of you are destined to be married in this room. And here's what Paul will say, and we'll read about it when we conclude. The first marriage has something to say about the last marriage. And so as we continue our journey, discovering the second Adam 
And in keeping with the theme of twos, I don't know if you've caught that yet, right? We had like two men and two temptations and two coverings and two rests. Today we're going to talk about two marriages. Two marriages. So with that being said, let's pray and we can um, jump into the sermon, to the message. Heavenly Father, have your way in me, have your way in us. Holy Spirit, do what you do, illuminate the text to every here in this room. No matter where, if they're married or they're single, no matter where they come from, no matter if they're from the right side of the tracks or the wrong side of the tracks, I pray that everyone in this room would hear your word. Holy Spirit, you would illuminate the text so that everyone could walk out of this room today and say, God spoke to me. I heard his voice. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Again, if you've been familiar with this series and really familiar with a theme of this entire year, we've been really wanting our church to learn to tell the story. What's telling the story? Like we want to be people who tell the story, but you can't tell it unless you know it. And it's the story of God's love for us. It's the gospel. Like we want, we don't want to be a church that just gathers on Sunday and that's all. We want a church that scatters as missionaries, letting a culture know that God loves them, that Jesus has pursued them as a groom pursues his bride. And you know that we've told this story in four chapters. Like you can take the entire Bible and you can kind of sum it up into four chapters. And so I'm going to use those chapters once again today as a framework to tell the story of marriage. And so if you're just taking notes or you just kind of want to know where we're going, chapter one, creation. Chapter two, fall. Chapter three, redemption. And then chapter four, honeymoon. Or what we've been calling consummation. Amen? Chapter one, creation. Chapter two, fall. Chapter three, redemption. And chapter four, honeymoon. Amen? Amen. Amen. Chapter one, creation. In the beginning, here we are again. I love Genesis In the beginning, did you know that God prepared a bride for his son? In the beginning, God prepared a bride for his son, Adam. And it's the process of that preparation, okay? The process of that preparation. Like if you've been married, you know the process of that preparation. You know what goes into it to prepare yourself. For marriage. It's the process of that preparation that kind of draws our attention today. It's really a peculiar process. In fact, you don't have to go there, but I just want to retell this process of preparation. In Genesis 2, 21 through 22, the scripture says, are you ready? The Lord God put Adam into a deep sleep. And while he slept, God opened Adam's flesh. And fashioned, he formed a bride from out of Adam's side. And when Adam awoke in Genesis 2, 22, the, the scripture describes God escorting the bride to her groom. Now, this isn't hard for us to imagine because most of us have been to a wedding before. We've experienced this. I mean, think about it. The bride hidden from view while the groom anxiously awaits at the altar. And after spending the entire day <laughs> making herself ready 
The music plays, the people rise, and the beautifully prepared bride is escorted down the aisle by her father to her groom. Right? Some of y'all just thought that was stuffy tradition. And, and, and uh, I get this, but we, we have like a, a new generation that kind of wants to, you know, buck tradition and do things like in a different way, right? And I'm not mad at that. But just don't forget, like the things that happen in a wedding ceremony have deep theological significance. Like I don't want you to look at a wedding the same again. And guess what? There's more. There's more to the story. Did you know that the first look inspired the first words? What what do I mean by that? The first words ever recorded by a human being in the scriptures, right? The very first words that was recorded in the Bible by a human being in the scripture came when the groom laid eyes, when the first groom laid eyes on the first bride for the first time. And the way the Hebrew arranges the text It it, it was poetry. When the first groom saw the first bride for the first time, he recited poetry. That girl had him singing. My dad liked that. And and this is what he said. Look at what he said. Genesis 2, 23. You guys good? You with me? He says, at last... At last, all right. (laughs) This at last, he says, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now the English is kind of, you know, English always takes great language and just makes it, right? But this, this is poetry in the Hebrew. This is more than just words. Like Adam is reciting vows. Those are vows. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I want you to see this. Adam acknowledges that Eve is a part of him. Like literally. Remember he went to sleep and God like opened him up. Adam acknowledges Eve as a part of him. And as such, Adam promises to care for her as if he were caring for his own body. Like to divorce from Eve would be to amputate his arm. And he promises to honor her her unique place. Eve is unique. Eve is the only creature of all creation that was created from a living being. She's unique. She's like him. She's from him, but she's unique. She's different. And so he promises to honor her unique place in his life as the one God selected, as the one God prepared, and as the one God brought alongside him to help him reflect God on the earth. So when Adam says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and he speaks poetry, he's not just spitting game. Like he's speaking covenantal language. This is really important. Because God's love for his people is a covenantal kind of love. God's love for his people is a covenantal kind of love. 
And this is what the first groom was reflecting. And this is what every groom who recites a vow on that wedding day is reflecting. Are y'all with me? What is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement. Right? But listen to this. A covenant is agreement based on your word. It's, it's a promise that transcends the changing nature of circumstances. What, what do I mean by that? You see, when, when I made a covenant with my wife, when I made a covenant with Jamila, I promised to love her unconditionally. I, I promised to stay. I promise to stay, e- even if her body changed. I promise to stay, even her, if her money changed. I-, I promise to stay, even if her mind, her mental health, her emotional health, her physical health changed. Are y'all with me? Yeah. Yeah. For richer and poorer, uh-huh. sickness and health, yeah. till death do us part. See, a covenant is, is a vow that I made based on my word. And my word transcends the shifting sands of circumstances and the fleeting feelings. I promise to love her even when I'm not in love with her. A covenant is a promise based on the stability of my word and not the instability of my fleeting feelings. God calls us to love like he loves. He calls us to love how he loves, not based on circumstances or the changing of time, but based on his word. Hmm, what a love, a covenantal kind of love. Not to be confused with a contract. A contract is transactional. It's an exchange. I do this and you do that. Not to be confused with a contract. A contract is transactional. A contract is motivated by mistrust. That's why, right? Yeah. Hey, sign a contract. Yeah. If you don't sign a contract, then you can say, just kidding. Take back, whatever it is. A contract is transactional. It's motivated by trust and it's bound by law. But a covenant is relational. And it's motivated by trust because I know you. And it's not bound by law, but, but, but love. Yeah. I can break a contract and pay a penalty fee. But a covenant is for life. And, I, you know, I like to go down little rabbit trails. I just want to talk about the Christian sexual ethic. All right, we live in a culture that has abandoned that sexual ethic. And we live in a culture where even Christians who are probably in here today think that it's okay to abandon that ethic or just somehow kind of like, somehow you can kind of just maybe hide that one to the side. I just want to remind you that the Christian sexual ethic is not old fashioned, but reflection. The Christian sexual ethic is not old fashioned, but reflection. It's a covenantal kind of love. It's a testimony to the faithfulness of God. You see, sex without covenant is prioritizing private pleasure without public commitments. Y'all hearing me? It's nudity without intimacy. 
It's selfish gratification without selfless promises. The Christian sexual ethic is like, hold up. We're not just offering up our bodies. We're laying down our lives. Like before you get this body, you, you, you promise to lay down your life. I know. I know this is a little hard and we start talking about sin and we start talking about, I mean, we start squirming like, pastor, what did you talk about? Shame last week? You know, but I just, there's a, there's an ethic. There's a reflection. There's a beauty and wonder and majesty. And can I just woo you? But, but I don't want to hammer you. Okay. I just, I just hammered you, but let me just woo you about the beauty of the Christian sexual ethic. It's the world that demoralizes sexuality and it's Christianity that esteems it, lifts it up. Isn't that beautiful? It's the culture that cheapens sex. It's just an exchange. You give me your body, I give you mine. We get a little pleasure out of it and we're gone. And I got no, and there's no commitment. Like I get to go. I don't get to stay, I I go. And I get it. Feelings. That's something we, we want, we desire pleasure. But sex is just a shadow. Sex is pointing to a greater pleasure. And, and, and we'll talk about this with marriage. But the problem is, is we fall in love with the shadow. We pursue the shadow. We look to the shadow to save us, to fulfill us. And it only destroys us. Back to the script. It's with this kind of covenantal love in mind that Moses, who's the author of this text, Moses prescribes the implications of this first marriage to really every human marriage that will come after. Like every human marriage in history will kind of look at the implications of this first marriage and prescribe it to themselves. What do I mean by that? Moses will say, after Adam has been in a deep sleep, after Adam has awoken and saw his bride and recited his vows, look what Moses will say. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh, one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. This was the ideal reality God intended for all humankind to experience. Remember I started off by saying, all of you will be married. This is the ideal reality. This is the ideal reality that God had intended for all mankind to experience. A marriage untouched by heartache. A, 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 a trust untouched by betrayal. A marriage untouched by rejection or dissatisfaction or guilt or shame. An ideal world where divorce was unimaginable because sin was unthinkable. But unfortunately, you know the story. That was lost. You remember? If you've been with us, really for the last couple of months, we've been in Genesis a lot. Right? Know the story. And so right after that first wedding, you can go and read it yourself. Chapter 2, wedding. Chapter 3, Dun, 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 dun. An uninvited guest <laughs> slithers into the reception. 
<laughs> Y'all have some money invited guys at your receptions? Right? They hang out in the parking lot, bring all the alcohol. Y'all know who that is. You're like, that's me. We got prayer for you. Right? We, immediately following this beautiful uniting of two becoming one, the snake, the serpent slithers in. And, and he convinces the bride to eat from the forbidden fruit, from the tree that God had told them not to eat of. And where was the groom? Right next to her. <laughs> what a lump on a log. Right, where was the groom? Standing silent beside her. Absent. Absent. While the snake says what he wants to say. Lies how he wants to lie. Absent. Silent. Abdicating his responsibility to guard the garden and protect the bride. Somebody's like, well, this is getting a little chauvinistic. Adam was the head. Yeah. Scripture tells us he wasn't just head of Eve. He was head of humanity. Right. Like it wasn't Eve's sin. It was Adam's. He abdicated. Are you with me? Yeah. That's why it's called the last Adam. And he'd fall into sin without putting up a fight. Like at least Eve questioned. At least Eve was like, well, wait a minute. God said, it. Adam's just like, okay. <laughs> now listen, and all of a sudden, the sweet poems. Remember those poems Adam used to whisper? All of a sudden, the sweet nothings and the poetry that he had whispered or that he had declared from his lips now turned into complaining and blaming and the first husband throws the first wife under the bus. Come on. Come on. It's been happening ever since. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> now I want you to see this. Speaking to this shattered reality, author Nancy Guthrie says this. Ever since that first marriage in Eden went wrong, God has been working out a plan to present a perfect bride to the perfect groom. Ever since like that marriage got shattered and distorted by sin, God has been working. He's been working out a plan. There's a story right there. The whole Bible is a plan of God working out a way to present a perfect bride to the perfect groom. Now I love, I'm just, I didn't, I didn't want to do this and I wrestled, but I, I just, Guthrie, Nancy Guthrie just goes on to give like a history of the bride in the scriptures. And I just, I'm literally going to just say what she said, okay? Uh, uh, I just want to give you like five different points and just go through the history of the bride in scripture. This is fascinating to me. Like for instance, a little later on in Genesis, Abraham, y'all remember Abraham? Like he's he's going to want to find a bride for his son, Isaac. And so here's what he's going to do. He's going to send his servant to find a bride for his son. And his servant is going to find Rebecca. And you know where he's going to find her at? Drawing water at a well. And apparently the well is the spot. Because Isaac and Rebecca's son, Jacob, guess what? He's going to fall in love with his future bride, Rachel, while drawing water from a well. 
and Moses, after fleeing Egypt and resting in the land of Midian, he's going to come to a well. And there's going to be seven women, seven sisters. And y'all are like, oh, I know this is going. No, 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 just one. And he's going to fall in love. He's going to meet Zipporah, who is going to ultimately become his bride. Now, recently, we were in a staff meeting, and I thought about my, my lovely staff. And they asked me, why did we call the coffee station the well? Like, y'all know, like, that little coffee station we have out there? We've been calling it the well. I want y'all to know. Now you know why. <laughs> it's a tough crowd. Tough crowd. Tough crowd. You know, I say it's a tough crowd every week. I think I just have to realize I just don't, I'm not funny. So anyway, that being said, now you know why we call it the well, okay? Come on, somebody. God likes his grooms to find brides at the well. Go get your coffee. Can't, can't help but make jokes. And Nancy Guthrie is just going to continue to kind of survey all throughout the Old Testament. God speaks of Israel as his bride, right? And we started with that earlier, right? He's going to rescue her from slavery, and he's going to give her water to drink in the desert, like a well. He's going to give her a new home. And then he's going to come live with her, right? He built his tabernacle to dwell among her. Yet, <laughs> if you read the Old Testament, over and over again, his bride participates in one adulterous affair after another. Right? She's going to flee up to high places. And she's going to commit a sexual sin and engage in sexual immorality with idol worshiping. And you know, it's really, God's going to write like a whole song of Solomon. He's going to write a whole love letter, wooing her back, calling her to remember. And she's going to continue to play the harlot over and over again. And if you really want to get messed up, read the book of Hosea. God is going to raise up a man named Hosea, a prophet. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to instruct him to marry a prostitute. He's going to tell him to take a prostitute as a wife. And Hosea's relentless love for an unfaithful bride is going to picture God's covenantal love for his people. Y'all with me? In fact, I have, listen to the words of the prophet Hosea. Hosea chapter three, verses two through three. It reads like this. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I will also, I will also be to you. And this is a picture of God's covenantal love for an adulterous people. Nancy Guthrie will summarize, in his relentless redeeming love for his unworthy adulterous bride, Hosea set before the people of God in his day a preview, a picture, a foreshadowing of the redeeming love of the divine bridegroom who's coming. And we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Jesus comes on the scene. And you know what John the Baptist calls himself? A friend of the bridegroom. Jesus, the last Adam, is the true groom. 
that everyone has been waiting for since the first groom failed in the garden. You know, Jesus is going to do his first miracle at a wedding. They're going to run out of wine. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to turn water into wine. Just to let you all know, Jesus is the bridegroom that keeps the party popping. That's the sermon. It really is joy, unspeakable. Joy, unspeakable. Some of you that you didn't hear anything I said today but that. (laughs) Yes, illuminate the text, Holy Spirit. But you know what's going to happen, though? Later on in John chapter 4, guess what Jesus is going to do? He's going to go through Samaria, and he's going to stop at a well. And he's going to meet a woman there. Jesus is going to go through Samaria. He's going to stop at a well, and he's going to meet a woman. And it's going to be a really weird time, like not the normal time for anyone to go to a well in that particular region. It's really hot. You don't go to the well at that time. But she's going to go during that time because she's going to presume that nobody's there because she's avoiding the town gossip. And the reason why she's going to do that is because we'll find out that she's had five husbands And the man that she's currently with is not hers. We're going to see a woman at the well who's had a life full of grooms, failed grooms, who she has used and who have used her. But Jesus is there on purpose. Are you all with me? He's not going to meet her in her mess. And, and Jesus is going to tell her. Jesus is going to like say, hey, I know. I know you've had this many grooms. And I know that the one you're with right now is not yours. And, and, and here's what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to know her shameful past. Jesus is going to know her sexual history. But he's still going to offer her living water. He's, he's saying, like, you could draw from this well and drink that water. He goes, but I'm going to give you a water, like salvation. We're not talking about sexual here. Yeah. Some of you are like, oh, Jesus got married. See, you're going to go off into this wild. No, 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 no. Something bigger than this. Jesus is the bridegroom, okay? He's going to offer her water that she can drink and never thirst again. And it's right there. She's like, well, you're a prophet. <laughs> and and, and she be, as he begins to speak, she goes, no, no, no. You're, you're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're the one that we've been looking for. God brought a bride to the well, to the last Adam, the faithful groom. You know what was incredible? Faithful groom didn't just invite her to drink, but then she went back to the town that she originally was like hiding from, and she began to be an evangelist. She began to tell everybody, come see a man who knew everything about me. Come see a man who knew my history. Come see a man who saw my dirt. Come see a man who sees my wounds and my shames. Come see a man who met me at the well. And though he saw me clearly, come meet this man. You're invited to this wedding. You're invited to this marriage. 
Come meet this bridegroom that we've all been waiting for. Chapter one, creation. Such an ideal marriage. Chapter two, fall. The ideal marriage gets distorted and destroyed. And now chapter three, redemption. Jesus, the last Adam. If you have your Bibles, we're finally getting to the text, but I promise you we're winding down. Ephesians chapter five. I wrestled to where I wanted to go. I'm being transparent with you. I wrestled to where I wanted to go and how I wanted to get there. But I settled in on this text. Ephesians chapter five. And part of the, this is a great text, but part of the reason why I wrestle through this text is because, you know, the minute I start reading, it's going to be met with suspicion. <clears throat> it's going to be read with eyes of the culture. And in this beautiful text that God has inspired is debated and, I, I, so I, I wrestled, but I, I do want to land here. So if you have your scriptures in Ephesians chapter 5, 24 through 32. And the scripture reads like this. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, you're going to see Moses, a man shall what? Leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now here's the key. Here's the key. Here's the whole reason why I just read this text to you. Here it is. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to what? Christ in the church. That's it. That's the key. So what does this mean? When it comes to this text, there are many rabbit trails we can go on. There are many lively conversations we could have about submission. but I want to focus on the mystery. Can we do that? Can we just focus on the profound mystery? In this text, Paul tells us a secret. I could just see him like, hey, come here, I'm gonna tell you guys something. Something nobody has known yet. Like something God has hidden since the beginning of time. Like I'm gonna gonna reveal to you a secret. Something God hasn't said yet. But I'm gonna tell you what it is. And Paul's going to go on to tell us that secret. And here's what he's going to say. Are you ready? Here's the secret. Marriage is just a shadow. You know what a shadow is, right? Shadow is not the real thing, right? It's a reflection of the real thing. Y'all with me? Marriage is just a shadow. 
Paul's going to say, marriage, it's, it's a dim reflection of something more real. Yeah. Yeah. Marriage is, is, a, is a dim reflection of something more real, something far greater. In fact, Paul's going to say, even the best marriages are going to pale in comparison to the real marriage. In fact, Paul takes a step further. He's going to take it a step further. And he explains that when God created the first groom, the first bride, and the first marriage, he created them with the last groom, the last bride, and the last marriage in mind. It was almost as if while God was creating and forming and making, he was looking at something else. Y'all with me? And so he's, he's creating the first groom and, and the first bride, and he's bringing together in the first marriage, but he's looking at something else. So God put the first Adam into a deep sleep. And when he was doing that, he was thinking about the last Adam being put to death. Y'all don't hear me. And when God wounded the first Adam in order to prepare for him a bride, he was thinking about the wounds of the last Adam. That would sanctify the church. That would make the church ready. That would make her holy and acceptable without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. You see, when God wounded the first Adam and pulled the bride out of his side, he wasn't just doing something new. He was looking at the redemptive plan of history. The last Adam who would be wounded in his side. And the scripture says that blood and water would come out. Which if you're Catholic, the blood and the water is a symbol of the baptism and the communion table. Two elements that we practice in the church. So when God (laughs) was creating the first groom and the first bride and the first marriage, he was thinking about something else. Y'all with me on this? And when the first Adam awoke, what did you think he was thinking about? He was thinking about the resurrection of the last Adam. But he wasn't just thinking about the resurrection of the last Adam. He was thinking about the resurrection of the saints. And on that day, when our bodies are resurrected, the bride, the church, made pure and holy by the blood of Jesus Christ is going to be escorted to the sun. And in that day, the sun's going to be like, at last, right? He's going to be at last, my bride. The one that has been perfected through my death and my wounding. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes, we're healed. And so the wounding of the last Adam and the death of the last Adam and the tomb of the last Adam served as a beautification for the bride. When the last Adam, and when the first Adam awoke, he recited his vows, he spoke his covenant and and the ideal reality was them to be together forever in eternity. And I can only imagine the joy that will be experienced on that day. Amen? 
When at last the bride and the bridegroom are united in paradise forever. Now, can I give you a word of caution? And we're going to land this plane. Word of caution to all. Um, and, And really, this is inspired by some writings from Pastor Timothy Keller. Here's your word of caution. Unless you see your relationship with Jesus as the real marriage, you're going to make an idol out of earthly marriage. And that goes to singles and marrieds in this place. Unless you see, unless you see, unless you understand, unless you realize that your relationship with Jesus is the real marriage, you're going to make an idol out of earthly marriage. So let me speak to the marrieds in the room. Do not make your spouse your savior. They can't do it. They can't hold it. They can't carry that. Do not make your ultimate joy, your ultimate sadness, your ultimate satisfaction. Don't put that on your spouse. Don't put that weight and that burden. But the problem is, is when you don't turn to the savior, you look for substitute saviors. What a crushing weight. And you know what? Your spouse is going to fail you. And they're sinners too. They're going to put that weight on you. You know, we do marriage counseling and we do married couples and kind of in our heyday pre-pandemic and even in small groups, we have married couples meeting together. And, you know, even in church, you can idolize your marriage. You can make it all about fixing the relationship so that there's peace in the house so that your idol can remain intact. And so you have to be really, really careful. Even when you're in marriage counseling or pursuing marriage events, you got to be really, really careful that the primary pursuit, the primary relationship, the priority in both of your lives is the marriage you have with Jesus Christ. If that's not the focus, you're going to crush each other. And when your spouse fails you, and he and she will, the disappointment is going to be crushing. Are you with me? To the singles. Don't make finding a spouse a savior. Don't do it. Don't allow, ready? Your desire to be loved. Your desire to be held. God, I just don't want to be alone anymore. I need someone to talk to. Don't allow that desire to cause you to sin. Y'all hear me? You know what an idol is? It's anything you're willing to sin, to get, or to keep. And this could come, this, this idolatry and singleness can come in many ways. Living together, sleeping together. Right, this is ways we make, we, we, we kind of go outside of the beautiful boundary. We start eating from the wrong tree. Remember God said, no, I know better. Y'all with me? Yeah. But, but it doesn't just come in that way, but also comes in, in deep disappointment and bitterness. Why God? Right? Even that is a reality that you've made marriage an idol. And here's what's gonna happen. If and when you get married, you're going to put that same burden and pressure on them that they can. And you're going to realize that whether you were single or you were married, you're not satisfied. Wow. Wow. 
I got to keep it moving. Marriage is just a shadow. Amen? Amen? It's a sign. Signs don't point to themselves. They tell you where to go. They don't say like, a sign isn't like, hey, look at me. I'm the prize. No, the sign says, hey, look, the prize is that way. That's what marriage is. It's a sign. It's a sign. Even if you got a great marriage, it's a sign. Marriage is a shadow. It's a sign pointing to something far more satisfying, far more fulfilling in Jesus Christ. Finally, the honeymoon. The honeymoon. Consummation. History will consummate with the ultimate marriage. The ultimate marriage. And the joy of marriage that was robbed from humanity in the beginning will be restored. But this time in a much greater measure. And the team can make their way up. This time, there'll be no more death. Amen? There'll be no more disease. There'll be no more divorce. There'll be no more sin. For this groom has laid down his life for his bride. He has conquered the grave. He has conquered sin. So that they can be together in paradise for eternity. And what's the story? The story is God preparing a perfect bride for the perfect groom. That's the gospel. I want to finish reading this message. Uh, I want to finish reading this text in Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 7 through 9. Obviously, most of you know, Genesis is the beginning. Revelation coming to an end, right? And it's not an end. It's actually a glorious beginning, but it's just things being made new. And so we're getting to the end of the text here. And what we're going to find, God is looking at the end. And he's describing it as the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be a reception. It's going to be a wedding party. And the scripture says, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the linen is the righteousness righteous deeds of the saints and the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb now i want you to see something here because there there might be a, a bit of a confusion notice it says the bride was adorned in fine linen right and that remember it was the dress is bright and pure and then it says this for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints wait wait a minute i thought we were covered in the righteousness of christ so i just i just want i want you to see that you see when we give our life to christ he covers us in his righteousness like we give to him are you ready we give to him our sin we give him our shame we give him our faults and our failures. And, and, and on that cross, he's punished on our behalf. And then he gives us his perfect record of righteousness. He gives us his pure, clean clothes. Amen? But, he, but here's the incredible thing is, when he gives that to us, the, the, the scripture says the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. And you know what the Holy Spirit starts doing? 
He starts beautifying us. He starts making us ready, right? He starts sanctifying us, making us holy. And so not only are we covered in the righteousness of Christ, so that every time we fall or fail, we can get back up and say we've been forgiven on the cross. But that truth then begins to sanctify us. And we begin to become a people that walk in righteousness. Right? The seeing isn't just about Jesus forgives you, now go on your way. Jesus forgives you, he covers you, and he cleans you, and you begin to walk this out. And you begin to grow in holiness. You begin to grow without spot and wrinkle. Because the bride is worthy. The groom is worthy. So the bride makes herself ready. The groom is glorious. The groom is perfect. And so the bride makes herself ready. And this is the story. This is the gospel. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the different facets of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you that it's one gospel... It's good news of what Christ has done, but it's illustrated to us in so many different beautiful ways. And so Holy Spirit, I pray as we walk out of this place, will you cover us in the robes of righteousness and would you prepare us and make us ready and help us to live in rhythms of life like a bride who prepares herself for her groom. May, we, may you find us constantly, God submitting to you, preparing for you because you are worthy, you are good. And Lord, we know one day you'll be taking this meal with us. We know one day we will be in heaven no longer remembering but rejoicing in the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so Father, we are so privileged. We count it an honor to be included, invited we love you. We thank you. I pray you'd be with us as we leave this place. May we never leave your presence. And we ask these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Again, thank you so much for tuning in today. Our prayer and hope is that you would be transformed by God's word and live for him. Before you go, would you consider giving a gift today? By faith, we are walking into the new year and continuing to believe in what God is doing in the city through our missional communities and mercy ministries. Visit us at inspiredchurches.com to give a gift and let's see together the great things God will continue to do in the new year.